This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 652, A Conversation with Alex Irvine. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 652. It's our Conversation with Alex Irvine episode. As I sit down with the author to talk about working on the comic book history of baseball, as well as what it was like working on Daredevil Noir and a few other projects. Uh, thanks so much for downloading this episode. You can also email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Upcoming episodes in the next couple of months will include interviews with Brian Reber, colorist, also with Inker Brett Breeding, as well as Judd Winnick and Ron Garney, amongst many others. Uh, so we have some great content coming out, so you make sure that you are subscribed to the feed so that you can make sure you don't miss any of these episodes. Again, you can read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again, and uh, I hope you enjoy this episode as we talk with Alex Irvine. Enjoy. Alex, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so there's a bunch of things I really wanted to talk to you about, but uh, I guess the first question is: you've done so many different things. You've written, you've written novels. You've written a lot of different, um, you know, books for Marvel. You've written DC stuff. You've done comics. You've done a book about baseball. What is the number one thing you've done that, uh, if you, you as a kid, would be most surprised by? Jeez. <laughs> uh, uh, well, me as a kid would be kind of delirious at what I do right now. Um, because, you know, I mean, I've written all the stuff that I loved to do when I was a kid. I have, I have touched it, uh, as an adult, extraordinarily fortunate, you know? Um, I mean, there's a lot of hard work and perseverance involved too, but, uh, but I feel really, really just, uh, super lucky to have been able to, uh, you know, get my hands on all this stuff that I loved when I was a kid. I mean, you know, there's the, the Marvel stuff I, you know all the Marvel comics I read when I was a kid, and, and I'm still every time I write a line of dialogue for Doctor Strange, I'm remembering the first Doctor Strange comics I ever read. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and uh, and then I wrote a D and D novel about ten years ago, and I, and I played I played I played every game under the sun, you know. But everybody starts with D and D, and you know, and then baseball. I've loved baseball since I was tiny, and. <laughs> So, so getting to put baseball and comics together, and then getting to do it with you know Tom Coker and CP Smith, that was uh, that book was a real bucket list item. So I don't know if I can pick, man. I get to do so many cool things. I'm, I just uh, it's a, it, I'm happy to wake up every morning because I get to do it more. Absolutely. So last year, actually for my birthday, my wife gave me the comic book story of baseball. Uh, which you like I, it, dude, you have a great wife. Yeah, she she's an amazing wife. Um, but I uh, I love the book, and so I was, I was reading it, really enjoying it. And then I was uh, when I was flipping at the back and kind of reading more about you, and then I realized that you had also written one of my favorite Daredevil stories of all time without realizing it, which was Daredevil Noir. Oh, and well, that is that is a book that uh, I remember when it came out, and it just uh, absolutely floored me. And I didn't realize again when I was reading the baseball book that it was also with art by Tom Coker. Um, so I'm just curious, like, how did you come to work on Daredevil Noir? Like, that's a, it was an interesting project that was happening back in the day when they actually did these noir books, uh, but you actually got to write one. So how did you, what was the process like to, uh, I guess, pitch or be pitched to take on Daredevil and do a noir story? 
Well, it was kind of funny because um, I had just done my first Marvel comic, which was a, a Hellstorm Max book uh, mm-hmm. um, called Equinox. Um, and uh, Axel Alonzo called me up and he was like, hey, so uh, we should do another comic. And I was like, okay. Um, and he said, uh, um, he threw a couple of other characters at me and then he said, uh, you know, you got any Daredevil stories? And I was like, ooh, well, as a matter of fact, here's here's what I would do with Daredevil. Um and uh, so we were round and round about this uh, this Daredevil story idea. We talked about it for quite a while. And then one day Axel called me up and he said, hey, we're doing this noir thing. And uh, do you think you could do this Daredevil story that we've been talking about as a noir story? And I said, yes, I can do that. Um, and the story did not need much massaging. Um, and uh, and then he said, uh, you know, I found this great artist. And, and he showed me some of Tom's other work. And I said, fantastic. When do we start? You know? Um, and so that, it, it's uh, it really boiled down to that, I, you know. Axel and I had done a book together, and and we had talked about a bunch of other ideas, and and uh, and Daredevil Noir was the one that happened. Um, and yeah, that was my first book with Tom. And then when the when um, when I pitched Ten Speed on the baseball book, they came back and they said, "Well, who's going to draw it?" And I said, mm. "And I gave Tom a call, and I said, Tom, you got to draw this baseball book.'" And uh, and. He said, "Yeah," and and then uh, we got CP involved too because he and Tom work really well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a big, you know, the book was a big endeavor. Um, and so uh, that's how that all ended up the way that it ended up with Daredevil in the War. So, um, how like obviously you were relatively new to, to writing for comics. So, how did you collaborate with Tom on? Like, did you just do full script, or did you guys kind of go back and forth at all? Or, like, what was that development process like to translate what your vision was and put it on the page? Um, well, it was uh, it was a full script um, because I didn't know how to work any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I was still, because I was new at it, I, my scripts were kind of long. And because I didn't know... I didn't know that part of what you're supposed to learn as a writer of comics is when to get out of your artist's way. <laughs> um, and uh, I've learned that since. Um, but so I, I remember this, this one time that I, uh, I wrote this long, fantastically intricate fight scene. Um, and uh, Tom called me up and he was like, so I'm looking at this script. And, you know, a lot of the time when, uh, when, uh, writers get to a scene like this, uh, they just kind of, like, write, they fight. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, oh, they do? Um, and so that, it was, uh, and I was like, but I gotta have this moment here, and this moment here, and this moment there, and Tom was like, right, 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 okay. And so he went off and he and he drew the scene, and it was, it was beautiful. Um, and it hit all the stuff that I, um, you know, really wanted to be front and center in the story. But the rest of it was much better than what I had originally come up with because, you know, I, I'm not I'm not trained as a visual thinker in, in the way that, that an artist is. And so um, that's what that's what working with Tom was like. Um, you know, he uh, and, and he would call me up and have ideas about stuff and or, you know, questions. And so it was real. Uh, we'd go back and forth. Same thing with the baseball book, only we did it for 18 months instead of uh, uh, six or seven months. Uh, wow. Noir. wow. Yeah. 
Now to go back a second, when you, when you first wrote your first story for Marvel, like had you been sorry to go back way back, but like were you a comic book fan growing up? Like what was your interaction with comics up until that point? What brought you to the point where you were even writing, you know, a Hellstorm book? Well, it was kind of strange. Um, I loved comics when I was a kid, and uh, and wrote a comic. I had a friend, Kevin Sari, um, in uh, in uh, when we were kids, we uh, we actually wrote and drew he mostly drew uh, a book called super dude um and we did uh i think we did three of them but they were really fat we would the, as many pieces of paper as the stapler could staple <laughs> we would staple that many pieces of paper together and uh make a super dude comic out of it um and so i was into i was into that stuff from the very beginning and then um, the 90, you know, well, as I got into college, I, um, I kind of got away from comics a little bit and then I was just starting to get interested in them again and I had begun to publish fiction, um, and begun working in games a little bit. And so I was, I was doing a reading in New York at KGB bar, um, because a novel of mine had just come out and a friend of my editors came up and said, Hey, a buddy of mine who works at Marvel is, uh, over at this bar across the street and you should, uh, you should go talk to him. I was like, okay. And, um, and so I went over and struck up a conversation with this guy, and he said, did you ever think about writing comics? And I said, well, yeah. Matter of fact, I did think about writing comics. And he put me in touch with Axel, and things went from there. Um, because, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, I talked to Axel, and, and, you know, he said, these are some characters that we've been thinking about uh, giving a boost to in this Max line or in this other way. And, uh, and the minute I heard Damon Hellstrom, I said, don't, 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 that one's mine. Um, and I had, I had sort of had this, uh, the idea that became Equinox, the, the Hellstorm book. Um, I'd had it floating around in my head, but I couldn't figure out how to do it because I had thought it was a piece of fiction. And then once, and then as soon, like the exact second that Axel mentioned Hellstrom, I was like, oh, that's not a short story at all. That's a comic book. Um, and it all made perfect sense, you know, and I wrote that and, uh, and I wrote it and, and Russ Brown do it and it looked great. So, yeah, that's pretty, that's a pretty cool story. I mean, it definitely uh, furthers the idea that you have to, you have to make something to be able to get into comics. Like you can't just jump in and say, I want to write a comic. Like you have to get known or, or put out work into the world that shows what you can do in some way. And that eventually you might be able to do that other thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, a lot of the opportunities that I've gotten throughout the course of my career, whether it's been in novels or licensed publishing or games or any of the weird interactive stuff that I've done, um, it's been because somebody saw something of mine and thought it was cool, which is always nice. Um, and then the next time this other weird thing came along, they said, well, I, you know, I give Alex a call, see what he says about it. And, um, and the trick is to always say yes, because one of the things uh, one of the things that has really helped me um, stay interested, I think, and not burn out is um, is every time there's a chance for me to explore some new kind of way of storytelling, I'm in. I, and uh, and whether it's uh, you know games, different game formats, or comics, or hybrid forms, or uh, interactive narratives or animation or anything like that. Somebody will call me up and say, do you think, you know, there's this thing, it's got this twist. And, and I said, yeah, I'll try it. Yep. I will. Um, because there's so many different ways to tell stories, man. And they're all, uh, they're all fascinating. They, they all have their things that they do really well and their things that are really frustrating. And, um, I, I, I'd take every chance I get to, uh, to try something new. 
when you first kind of entered game design, like working in games, like how, how did you approach that? Mm. Well, um, I actually was already working on my first game. It was an alternate reality game. I mean, it was actually the alternate reality game that the term was coined for, um, called The Beast, okay. back in 2001. Um, and uh, I was working on that because the uh, a friend of mine um, had been brought in by Microsoft to, to write it, and the project quickly got too big for one guy, and so he called a couple other people, and I was one of them. Um, and so I did, I did that, um, and then I didn't work on another game. Well, I, and then I did another ARG um, called I Love Bees for the release of Halo 2. Um, and then I didn't work on those for a long time. I got involved in other stuff. And then um, Mark Laidlaw, who was uh, um, a uh, sort of, he's a kind of legend in the, in the gaming field, and, and I knew him because he's a great writer of fiction, too. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the main writers of Valve for a long time um, and, you know, wrote Half-Life and stuff. Um, and he, uh, he emailed me one day and he said, Hey, you've done some work for Marvel, right? And I, and I had, I had, and I said, yeah. And he said, I got a, I got a friend who's doing this game and I think it's a Marvel game. And so do you mind talking to him? I was like, okay. And so this guy <laughs> called me up and, and, uh, he said, you know, I have this mobile game and Marvel says we need a writer for it. And, um, and their conversation went from there and that turned into Avengers Alliance, which I worked on for six years. Um, and then that led to other games and other games. And, you know, now I'm, I'm working on three Marvel games right now and a walking dead game. And there's other, other things on the, on the bubble. And so it all comes from, uh, being open to, to new things coming along, you know, and sometimes it takes years, mm-hmm. you know, years and years. Um, and you never know when, you know, a, a, a positive interaction you have with somebody is going to ping back 10 years later because they remembered liking working with you. Mm-hmm. To get back to, um, a question of, uh, you know, you as a kid, uh, was <clears throat> it, was it, was it comics or baseball? Well, what would have won out? Do I have to choose? If you had to um, choose, yeah. Well, by the time I was reading a lot of comics, I was actually playing more soccer than baseball. Okay. But I was watching a lot of baseball. Um, and, man, I don't know. I would have thrown it all over to just play D&D and all the time and, and other games. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like Traveler, Bushido, and, uh, and and Gamma World. and I mean, we, we played games nonstop. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know if I could choose. That's that's why that's one of the things that made doing a book about baseball so exciting is because I love them both so much. For sure. Before I get into the baseball book, because I do want to talk about it, um, okay. to get back to Daredevil Noir just for a second, um, one of the things I've always loved about it is how you kind of closed out the series, where you have this great kind of tap-to-tap moment with Daredevil and Kingpin. They're both kind of getting ready for the fight, and then they go at it, and then you just pull away, and that's it. Yep. In In your mind, did you ever think of like actually showing the end or was it just more exciting to kind of show that the battle goes on and it almost doesn't matter? To me, the least interesting parts of most comics and most movies are the fight scenes. Hmm. And I mean, they're beautiful to look at, but it's really hard to do a lot of storytelling in a fight scene because the whole point is to beat the snot out of the other guy or vaporize him or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. extract his molecules or whatever. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, so, and one of the things that interests me about the uh, Daredevil Kingpin relationship, and I'm not the only person, obviously, who has thought of this, is that they need each other. They need this. They need each other the same way that Batman and the Joker need each other. You can pick any other um, dyad of hero and villain that uh, um, 
and and I thought, well, what if uh, one of the things that got me interested in this story when it first started to percolate in my head is like, what if what if Fisk understands that and he understands it better than Daredevil does, and um, and he starts trying to use it to manipulate Daredevil, and um, and so I, I because I really wanted to uh, I to sort of turn Daredevil's basic power against him because his basic power, you know, he's a human lie detector, right? He can, he can, he can tell from your, your body odor and your heart rate and your breathing and everything, whether you're lying and all that. And so because he can do all that, it's a real short step to convince yourself that you're never wrong. Hmm. And so I wanted, I went, and so I said, all right, so what if the Kingpin figures that out and decides to exploit it? Like that's the one weakness that's the one weakness is that Daredevil believes in his power a little bit too strongly. And so by the end of the story, Daredevil's, both his doubt and his faith have been restored because he can't have one without the other. And then they can fight, you know, because, <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and then it'll go on, you know, it'll always go on the story. You know, the, the uh, um, I wanted to frame the story that way because I, I really wanted the story to land in a spot where, um, where most stories don't land. Mm-hmm. It was interesting too, just reading it because your version of Matt, because again, it fits the, you know, the, the noir and the, the idea of the noir books was that it was also set in that kind of time frame. So you have a, you have a Matt who is maybe not as classically educated as the Matt we're used to, but still has that nobility of the Matt we're used to. So everything else kind of is, is still Matt, but he's not quite as smart. And even at the end where he's like, you know, I thought about, you know, going to school and being a lawyer, but you know, it's almost that you're able to portray that as, the intellectual elite of Kingpin versus, you know, the kind of the, almost the working class, uh, goodness of a man like Matt Murdock. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely there. The Kingpin is one of your guys with, uh, you know, diamond stick pins and, and all that kind of stuff. And he would ordinarily look down on trash like Matt. Um, and Matt knows this, you know, Matt knows that, uh, that life has dealt him a bad hand of cards. Um, but he doesn't let it, he doesn't let it get to him. Well, I mean, sometimes he lets it get to him, but he doesn't let it change how he acts. You know, he still he he acts out of a belief in the right thing, even though he knows, you know, that uh, that because he's blind, he can't go to law school, or because he's poor, or because his dad was a boxer, you know, all this stuff. Um, and I actually did some research on. I was trying to find out who was the first blind lawyer in New York. Um, and, and if I remember right, because I, t- I wrote this comic a while ago. Um, if I remember right, the first blind lawyer in New York didn't pass the bar until the forties. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And, uh, so it was, and, and I wanted to have a thing in, in the story about, uh, Murdoch being, you know, denied the opportunities that, uh, that, that our daredevil, the daredevil of main six, one, six universe has. Hmm. So let's, let's move on to the baseball book because it is okay. it's quite a feat because, I mean, it's it's the, in the title. It's the comic book story of baseball. So use the, the kind of the comic book format uh, and visuals to be able to tell an overarching story of the, of the history of baseball, which is uh, very big. <laughs> so so <laughs> a lot of material. So first, how do you go about pitching or coming up with this idea for this book? Like how did that kind of this, you know, kind of percolate in your mind that this is the book I got to write? Well... I had been looking for a chance to write something about baseball for a long time. And, um, I was, geez, it must've been in the fall of 2015. That sounds right. I was wandering around New York comic con with my agent 
and he had to take off uh, because he was going to the table that another client had who had just launched a book. And I was like, oh, cool, what's the book? He said, it's called The Comic Book Story of Beer. You should check it out. I said, ha, ha, ha. The publisher should do a book called The Comic Book Story of Baseball. That was like the first words out of my mouth. Um, and uh, I was kidding around. But Jason, my agent, like stopped dead in his tracks and turned around and he said, you know, they were talking about a baseball book, but they didn't think they could find somebody to write it. And I was like, I, I can solve that problem. Um, so that was on Thursday or Friday at the show, early in the show. And, and so uh, um, this, the minute I got home, I, I wrote up a pitch and sent it to Jason, and he sent it out to Ten Speed, and they bit right away. And then we went, you know, we went through all the usual stuff to uh, um, find artists and everything. But it just, uh, it was, it was one of those moments when I heard comic book story of and thought, oh, well, if they're doing big books that are related to, you know, subjects, I'll do baseball, um, and it worked. Absolutely. Well, and it's a great book. Now, how, when you start doing research for this, I mean, as a fan of baseball in general, you probably kind of had in your mind maybe a quick framework of you know the, the big highlights. But when you're doing research for a book like this, what what was the the most um, I guess what was the the fun stuff that you kind of discovered about you know the history of baseball that maybe you didn't actually already know uh, as a fan of the ball game already? Well, I've always been kind of a research nerd, and I've always loved reading about baseball. Not necessarily the classic, like, you know, Boys of Summer kind of stuff, but uh, but stories about baseball weirdos. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like um, um, Mo Berg and, uh, and, and people like that. And, and all the stories about the, the, just the Bywaters, people who just showed up in the game for a little bit and were strange and then were gone. Um, I've been, I've, and so a lot of those weird little stories that ended up in the book, um, I already knew. And... But then there was, you know, tons of stuff I didn't. I, I, and I read so much and so intensively for, you know, a, a year and a half um, that uh, that it's it's funny. A lot of this stuff has gotten so deep in my head that I that I, I can't remember when I actually learned it. Um, you know, whether whether I learned it during research or already knew it, and it's it's all kind of it's all kind of stewed together. Um, but uh, I was. Oh, here's one story that I had never heard was the one about Charlie Pride, hmm. um, which, uh, I mean, everybody knows he's a country singer, you know, and he's involved with the Texas Rangers and everything, but um, I did not know that he had played in the Negro Leagues in uh, in the 50s, but the story gets even kind of cooler than that, um, is that uh, he was playing for a semi-pro team, uh, he was working at a smelter in Montana, and playing music at night, and playing semi-pro baseball, um, and then he was, uh, and then, and then he had played for a Negro league team and he had actually been traded for a bus. That <laughs> uh, uh, I read that story and I, I had to stop him and, and put the book down that I was reading and then pick it back up again and read the line again. Cause I thought that's gotta be a typo. I must've read that wrong, but no, he was traded for a bus. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, that was just fantastic. Uh, and then some of the stuff about the House of David teams. I mean, I knew about them because I'm from Michigan and I'd been out to St. Joe's before, mm-hmm. where the House of David compound was. But I didn't know about all the stories that went along with them. And um, and turns out they also had, you know, they had a brass band and a basketball team and all this other stuff that I didn't put in the book. But uh, but that was a really magnificently strange bunch of people. Um, and there was a picture of 
I used, I ran across a bunch of images that I couldn't use in the book, and there was you know one of Babe Ruth wearing a fake beard uh, because the House of David was trying to get him to barnstorm with him, and um, and uh, all kinds of other stuff. So there's one of the things that I love about baseball, um, apart from just watching the game, because I think it's a it's a beautiful game to watch. Um, one of the things I love about baseball is the way that it lends itself to all these stories of weirdos, and and the way that the that that the weirdness of baseball players gets tangled up and, and interwoven with the weird little currents of just Americana and American culture and history. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, uh, uh, and so that, that I had to pull myself back from a lot of that stuff a lot of the time and just, and, and remind myself that, okay, I have to, you know, talk about the all-star game of the world series this year instead of just wandering down these little by roads, which sometimes I, I find are more interesting. When you're writing and starting to break down a book like this, and when you have Tom on board, like what was the collaboration with you guys like? With this, this is a very specific type of project. Obviously, you're dealing with a lot of you know reference material. There's you know you know what these people look like. There's pictures. There's you know magazines that you're kind of using. He's he's doing his renditions of certain magazine covers and things that happen. So, how, what is the collaborative process like? Because it's not just you know a typical prose book, but this is actually integrating visuals into it in a way that you wouldn't usually have when you're talking about baseball. Unless you're actually yeah. looking at actual pictures of these people. Yeah, it was. Um, I tried to include a lot of links to reference images, um, but I did that because I knew Tom would ignore them if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I gave him the chance to check all that stuff out, and I mean, he does his homework anyway, so I probably didn't need to do that. And CP is the same way, um, and so if there was, some, and if there was something in a reference image that uh, that they thought was weird, then you know that they. They'd call me up, and and, uh, and so we would talk about, you know, which uniform should this guy be wearing in this picture because he sent me this reference. It's from 1957 after they changed their uniforms, and they should look like they did in 1949. And, uh, and so there were a lot of conversations like that. Um, despite which, errors crept into the book, and and, uh, and I noticed a lot of them when they were published, and other people have reminded me, or have readers have notified me of a few, and so a lot of them are going to get fixed in, uh, in a second printing. Um but that's another thing that happens when you work on a book this big with that many moving parts is that errors creep through. Um, but what, uh, oh, the process. Uh, so yeah, I would, uh, I wrote it pretty much like a comic book script, except for there were occasional pages with the full page sidebars. I wanted to look more like those old sporting news, uh, um, sort of illustrated, uh, the sporting news used to have these, these full page comic inserts that weren't quite comic books, but, they were more than just illustrated text, too. Um, and so uh, it's, I sent Tom and CP a couple of, a couple of these just uh, um, as reference, and, and they took them and ran and did all kinds of cool stuff with the idea. Um, so there was that, and then there were you know other regular comic book pages, and a lot of it was reference-based. Then there was, there was places for whimsy, too. Like, you know, the... the um, I mean, how do you draw a comic book page about people playing stool ball? Um, so, uh, so I just decided to have some fun with it. Um, and then there were times when I thought I was being a serious historian, and then, um, uh, you know, like there's the Walt Whitman quote, and Whitman's wearing the late beer hat, um, <laughs> which uh, which I did not put in the script. That was I don't know whether that was Tom or CP, but it, it's probably my favorite panel in the book. Um, and so there's. Uh, Everybody got to have some fun, even though even while we were trying to be responsible to the history of the game and everything. Because uh, I mean, if it's not fun, man, what's the point? 
Well, I was going to ask about that. How did you kind of? There's a very specific narrative voice being used, especially at the, at the beginning when you talk about you know the history of the game uh, and how a lot of the myths are just that and they're not really real. And you'll say this happened, but not really. And so, like, how did you kind of settle on using that narrative voice, especially up front where you're you know you're grabbing someone and getting them interested in the mythology of baseball? Yeah, that was one of the hardest things to figure out was how to position um, the narrative voice of the book uh, vis-a-vis the reader. And I tried it a bunch of different ways. Like originally I was going to come up with like some little avatar that was going to be a character in the book and talk people through. Um, that didn't work. Um, and then I decided to pull it way back and make it really detached. And, and, and that didn't work. And so then I just decided that um, – I was writing this book, and so I was going to write it so it sounded kind of like me. And um, and the editor let me get away with it, so I kept doing it. <laughs> and there are, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the book that is, it's the history of the game presented in a, in a fairly uncontroversial fashion. But there's, you know, there are places here and there where uh, my opinions show through. Um, and I don't think they're all, you know, all that outrageous. Um, and you can also tell, I mean, you can also tell from the, the emphases of the book, um, you know, there's there's not a ton of stuff in there about sabermetrics. There's not a ton of stuff in there about, uh, um, um, well, a lot of other things. Red Sox fans give me static because there's not enough, they say there's not enough stuff in there about the Red Sox. I live in Maine, you know, so. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I hear all the time about, how come 2004 is only like one panel? And uh, I was like, busy, man, I'm getting on to other stuff. Um <laughs> Well, you, you, you have, you know, over, you know, over a hundred years of material, so. Well, that's the thing. And, and, um, and also the, the interesting thing is, I mean, to that point specifically, is that the resurgence of the Red Sox happens at the same time that all the other teams that were great in the first few World Series got great again. You know the the the, uh, the Giants and the Cubs and and uh, so the the cycle is really funny the, because if you look at the the teams that played in the first uh, the first two or three World Series um, and then you look at the teams that play in the last two or three World Series there's a big cycle that's come around and it's uh, and and so that was of interest to me because I'm I'm not so much a historian I'm a writer man I'm not a historian and so I was looking for the story. You know what's the story, and um, and the story to me was uh, was the way that everything in baseball moves in those kinds of cycles, and um, and that's why it was it was pretty cool to uh, to end the book. I mean, I was I was watching the the sixteen World Series. I was watching Game Seven of the two thousand sixteen World Series, uh, actually with my laptop open next to me. Because until that game was over, I didn't know what the last page of the book was going to be. Oh wow! Yeah, and you know, and then it went to extra innings. I was like, "Ah, you guys are killing me!" <laughs> um, I mean, because uh, I, I really wanted the uh, um, I really wanted the Indians to win. Let me be honest with you, because I always root for American League teams. Um, but when the Cubs won, it was for the book's sake. It was actually perfect because you know the the Cubs broke their streak, which is this ongoing operatic story of failure. Um, uh, and it was, and you know, they were playing the Indians, the team with the second longest streak. And, and so, uh, and, and so then I finished the script and turned it in and Tom and CP started to draw it. And then I was like stricken with fear that the Indians would win the world series the next year. And <laughs> that, that, uh, that the whole story would be broken. Cause we already knew at this point, the book wasn't coming out till 2018. And I was like, Oh no, 
will I be able to add more pages? I mean, I didn't think so. And, and uh, will the book seem like it's already out of date? But then they didn't. So there's still that one more, uh, you know, that one long drought that's still out there. <laughs> Although the, tiger, the Tigers are at 35 years now, which is, which is long. Yeah, 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 that's true. Now, here's a question. So obviously, you know, baseball has a lot of a lot of memorable moments. Was there kind of a, a moment that you couldn't really work into the narrative of the story that, you know, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot, but if there's any particular moment, you're like, oh, I really wanted to put that in, but it just didn't fit? Yeah. Um, boy, I mean, there's tons. There's um, a lot of them having to do with, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I gave a lot of the great players from the early years of the game their due. Like, I don't think George Sizzler is mentioned in the book or uh, um, or Harry Heilman. Or, or there's, there are a lot of players who were really, really great baseball players that um, that I just I just had to leave out because um, you know there's so much emphasis on Cobb and Ruth and Matthewson and and uh, in in that era and I'd already spent so much time tracing the early parts of the game that I really had to get going and, and get on into the 20s and 30s and the, the sort of era after Babe Ruth comes along mm-hmm. and so if there's one thing that I would really like to do um, well, there's two places I'd, I'd like to have had more room. And one is the early 2000s, um, because there really was a lot of interesting stuff going on then. Um, and uh, and the other is the sort of the teens, the teens and early 20s, um, because th- there was, you know, the end of the dead ball era, and and the, um, the there was so much going on that was formative for later stages of the game. You know, the Federal League and all that kind of stuff. And I touch on all that. Black Sox scandal, um, but there was uh, there's a lot more that could have been said, and I asked him actually when I was when I was outlining this book and I started to confront the real scope of the task. I went back and I was like, hey, so I know we talked about 176 pages, but what if we did this in two volumes? <laughs> you know, and I'll like I'll do the first volume up to up to World War Two, or you know, or, or we can break it off at Jackie Robinson or something. Um, and they said no, <laughs> but it would have been a lot easier on me. I mean, it would have taken a lot longer to write, but it would have been a lot easier to have a little bit more room to uh, to give some of those those side notes they're due. You know, for sure. I mean, you're you're compressing so much into such a, a little real estate, so I mean, it's difficult, and especially when you have these favorites, and or you, as you said, as you kind of go down the research rabbit hole and find you know these lovable weirdos, you also want to give them all their due. Um, yeah, like Germany Schaefer. I could have gone on forever about Germany Schaefer, but you know, it's uh, instead he's got one little panel, and he doesn't really matter in the history of the game. But he's the kind of player that made baseball a sport that people love. People admire football players. People love baseball players. Hmm. And one of the things I was trying to get at um, in this book was why, why do, why do, why does baseball inspire love, where other sports inspire a different kind of passion, you know? And I think it has to do with, uh, with that narrative quality and the, and the fact that so many bizarre people have played baseball, but sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, no, no. That's, that's a good answer. And, and I mean, baseball is a game where, you know, you could go to 
many different baseball games and you'll find something new, like something crazy will happen that you've never seen mm-hmm. before. And you'll remember that forever. Like I, uh, like even just little things, like I was at a, a postseason game in 2015 and the, the Blue Jays were getting their asses kicked. So they brought in a, a position player to pitch. And that was the first time that ever happened in the postseason. So as yep. much as that was a painful game, I can always say, well, that was the game where, you know, Cliff Pennington came and pitched in relief. Like <laughs> that's something yep. that you wouldn't have expected to see when the game started. So I like that aspect of baseball that if you go to enough games, You'll, you will eventually see something you've never seen before. Yeah, 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 it's great. Um, yeah, I saw a position player pitch one time. I believe it was, uh, I'm trying to remember, it must have been Mike Heath. There's just something magical about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not supposed to happen. I know, I know, it's great. Um, um, so question, um, one thing that you kind of, you lay out here, I'm not saying I disagree, but you do lay out a controversial claim that, uh, that um, um, the the best baseball movie of all time, you 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 de- definitively declare that it is Bull Durham. Is this your 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 personal held belief? Um, I do love that movie. I do love that movie. But I just watched A League of Their Own again not too long ago. That one that one really stands up. Mm-hmm. What would be yours? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I I feel like it's it's rote to say Field of Dreams because it's you know it's not it's about baseball, but not necessarily about baseball. But there's just something about the uh, the mythology, I guess, about baseball that gets further than that movie more than maybe the game itself. Yeah, I mean, Field of Dreams is a movie that wouldn't exist without baseball. But it's I'm I don't know if it's actually it's not a baseball movie in in the in the same way. I know and. Uh, I mean, Eight Men Out is the other one people talk about a lot. Okay, you know, I, I'll go with that. And um, uh, there's, uh, what's the other one I'm forgetting? Uh, one, that I, one that I don't think is the best, but I do like one aspect of it especially is uh, For Love of the Game. Just because when Kevin Costner's pitching, when he's just says, uh-huh. you know, clear the mechanism and just the idea of everything kind of going away. I've always liked yeah. that as a, as a way of kind of like, how would you concentrate when you have 40,000 people chanting at you? Yeah, I, I like that movie too. I liked it more than I thought I would. And uh, um, I think it stands up pretty well. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the other one that people always say is The Natural. And I and I watched The Natural twice while I was writing the book. And then I've watched it again since then because uh, I was sitting around with my mom one day and it came on. And so we watched it. Um, and I, I've seen The Natural probably a dozen times. But the problem with me and how I feel about The Natural is that I've also read the novel. Hmm. And the novel is really different and much, much better. Not in the way that, you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, the book was better than the movie because books do different things well than movies do. But um, the, the story in Malamud's novel is so much richer and just has a, just a gut punch of an ending. It's a really, really great book. And the movie of The Natural is beautifully shot and the people are beautiful and the story is swell and I love Roy Hobbs, but there's not a single surprise in the whole movie. Hmm. And so I just, I, yeah, I couldn't, uh, um, that's one thing that I, that's one reason why I give Bull Durham the edge is because Bull Durham feels like a movie that knows baseball. That's true. That and, uh, and so, which, you know, it should because Rod Shelton wrote it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I get, so, okay. After all this, I'm going to stand by my choice. Okay. Bull Durham. I mean the uh, the 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 youngster in me the the child still loves Rookie of the Year even though it's not necessarily the greatest of films but 
Major League is the other one that people are always going on about, and uh, I don't get it. I mean, that movie's got some laughs. You know, what I really wanted to say was Bad News Bears, mm. uh, because that's probably still my favorite baseball movie ever, just because I was a kid when it came out, and so I imprinted on it. Oh, for um, sure. But, uh, yeah. No, I'm going I'm to stick with Bull Durham. One thing I really enjoyed that uh, you definitely spent a lot of time talking about in the book is just um, what it, how how interesting it is and how this helped the mythology of baseball at the time during World War II, the fact that you had baseball players leaving and taking in the war, which is something I don't think we can imagine happening today. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you imagine Bryce Harper <laughs> signing, up, signing up to go fight in Afghanistan? Um, I mean, not to pick on Bryce Harper, but uh, but anybody making that kind of money and uh, with that kind of status. Yeah, that was the thing about, I mean, that era with all athletes was, uh, um, you know, that was that was before they started to get rich, except a very few of them. You know, Ruth made some money and some, some of the other guys did, but they, none of them made, none of them made amounts of money that would have seemed like mythological to the ordinary person. No. You know, and... Uh, and they did things that any other person w- would have done. A lot of them had off-season jobs, you know, and and, uh, and yeah, they signed up and they went off to the war. And you know, there's the there there are the ones like uh, like Williams and Greenberg who uh, whose careers were completely transformed. I mean, you know, they, who knows what uh, what Ted Williams' uh, hit numbers would have looked like if he hadn't if he hadn't been gone for so long. And the same with Hank Greenberg, you know. I mean, I. I have a theory that Hank Greenberg would have would have hit sixty one before Maris hmm. if he um, um, during the war years because he would have been playing against wartime pitching for one thing and he was Hank Greenberg. Um, <laughs> That's a good point, actually. But uh, yeah, um, but Greenberg. I mean, I, I, I mentioned this in the book. I mean, he went to try and sign up and they wouldn't let him because he had some minor medical problem. And he actually went to I think his member of Congress and said, "No, listen, I'm going to sign up and I need you to make it happen." And so and so they went and did. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was a sense of, uh, there's a sense of connection between athletes and, and the country and athletes and fans and athletes and just, you know, people, the culture that doesn't exist anymore. They're so insulated. They're in a bubble. Um, and they're, and there's, they're separated from everybody and they're performing the whole time. They're always performing. There's always a microphone in their face. Um, you know, they're, they're characters in video games as much as they're real people. And that's, that's really different. That's really different. The, uh, the athlete of today, um, exists in a, in a very different relationship to the fan and the culture and just the, the person on the street than athletes did in the thirties and forties. I think that's part of why some of these, you know, the, the, these players in the, like, you know, the Babe Ruths and, you know, of that era are kind of, uh, lifted up as as these larger than life figures because as much as they're larger than life, they they also have these foibles. They're just like us. They're just as screwed up. In fact, some in some ways more so. But they managed to be something better than that. They managed to kind of crawl the way up and be more elite. Whereas you know the more modern baseball player maybe doesn't feel like they have that sense of overcoming and, and becoming this this you know this mythological character. Yeah, I mean, Ruth, oh, geez, you want to talk about stories I couldn't get in the book. Read some stories about Ruth sometime. <laughs> some amazing ones. Um, they were like, no, the book has to be PG. Come on, <laughs> man, this is a great story. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, uh, the, it's often said that the greats of the early game wouldn't be able to compete in the game today, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, because 
the the guys who are playing in Major League Baseball now have been thinking about nothing but baseball and doing nothing but baseball since they were 12 years old. And they've all gone to camps, and they've all had specialized coaching, and they've all they've all uh, been playing on elite travel teams. And, and um, you know, you go through American Legion ball, and then you either play college or you go through... And, and <coughs> whereas, you know, a guy like Ruth, he just played baseball. And then somebody noticed him one day, and they're like, hey, kid, you can play. And so they sent him off to some Class C team somewhere. Um I mean, that's an example. I don't. I don't recall exactly if that's if that's actually what happened to Ruth. Um, but the the distinction I want to draw is that you know the athletes of today, and it's the same with basketball and football. They specialize by the time they're in middle school, and that's all they do. And so, and you know, baseball players in the you know thirties, forties, even into the fifties. Like I said, they had they had off season jobs. A lot of them, you know. And, <laughs> Um, and so they weren't. And went, went, the reason they went to spring training is because they had, they hadn't picked up a baseball in four months. And you know now everybody does off season conditioning all the time, nutrition programs, and um, and so yeah, they're they're these incredibly highly tuned athletes. And but what what has been lost is the is the weird idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Three Finger Brown is in the Hall of Fame because he had a curveball nobody could hit. Three Finger Brown wouldn't make a high school high school team now. No, because they'd take one look at him and be like, "Kid, you only have three fingers." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. That's true. And um, and so it's uh, so what have we lost? You know, in this uh, this intense specialization. And that's a, and that's one reason. You know, if I'm honest, that's one reason why I spend so much more time looking at the early game, um, even up into the '80s and the early '90s. Because I remember when I was a kid, you know, Sparky Anderson was mad at Lance Parrish because Lance Parrish liked to lift weights. Hmm. And Anderson was convinced it was going to ruin his swing. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't. Um, but that was how uh, baseball had this weird, uh, blinkered, old-fashioned way of thinking. That had its problems, you know, and those problems have been amply documented. But there's there was also just this weirdo charm about it, and I miss that. For sure. Before we close out here and let you uh, get back to your evening, um, one thing I, w- uh, that I liked about your book, and I think because of the visual component was able to sell it in a, in a way that maybe just a prose book wouldn't have, is that when you do pick out you know certain select uh, sayings from different players or things they've said, and then you have the visual that kind of add uh, either slight juxtaposition like you did with Whitman or uh, uh-huh. just adding like an inflection or just something in the facial structures, you're able to sell a moment or sell a, a quote in a way that you couldn't just written on the page, whichever they liked. And so what was that process of kind of picking out these things that you would, you know, you quote, like Satchel Page, for example, obviously has a lot of great sayings that he said <laughs> over the years. Yeah. And so like, how do you even decide like which one, which ones are going to kind of make the cut or fit the narrative voice that you've established for the book? Well, Page was tough, man, because I mean, you could do a whole book about him. I mean, people have, uh, obviously. And, and I read a couple of them, but, um, but the, because I mean, there were stages to his career too, and so. But I wanted to pick out, you know, the at the at the height of his fame, um, and, and so I decided just to condense them all into one. Like, you know, he's he's in a locker room and he's surrounded by reporters, and I just had him sort of just slinging out all of these uh, sayings that uh, that he's famous for, and, and because there was no way to speckle them throughout pages and pages of the book and so that was one of the one of the things that as you said the graphical format let me do 
you know, I could have Paige standing in this group of laughing white reporters and, uh, you know, saying, don't look back, something might be gaining on you. Um, and all these other famous sayings. And it was a way of getting all those things in there. I tried to do the same thing with, like, Yogi Berra and, um, and, uh, it, and condensing it to a point where I was, it was, uh, um, sort of, overlaying a whole bunch of different moments into that, that were all similar moments into one that I could use to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause I don't know when was the first time Paige ever said any of those things. I don't probably nobody does. And so I invented a moment in which he said all of them and it works because I really wanted to get them all in the book because they're <laughs> great. Now, uh, as a kind of a, a closing, a closing thoughts, um, what from the kind of the, the golden age of, of baseball, um, was there a particular player that you came away with a, a greater appreciation than you did before? Or who was kind of like the, that favorite player that kind of stands out in terms of what they kind of brought to the game or the stories about them or all those things combined? Who was kind of, I guess it was a two-part question, who from the golden age of baseball was kind of your, your favorite player? And then who was the one that you felt the most appreciation for that you didn't maybe know enough about before you did the research for the book? Well, uh, there's going to be a bunch of answers to this question, I guess. <laughs> uh, Stan, Stan Musial, I guess. Okay. Um, I think he's, I think people don't understand exactly how great he was anymore. And uh, Hank Aaron, who turned 85 today. Uh, Happy birthday, Hank. (laughs) Um, Hank Aaron, I mean, everybody knows about the home runs, but if you took away all of Aaron's home runs, he still had over 3,000 hits. And this is a dude who hit 700 home runs, 755. (laughs) Um, And he still, uh, he hasn't hasn't played a baseball game in 40 years, and he still holds the all-time record for total bases. Wow. And um, and it's... uh, when you look at Aaron's numbers, they're, it's they're really kind of astonishing, and so and, and it's the same with Musial actually. So you know there are players like that who you know nobody thinks about Stan Musial anymore unless you live in St. Louis, but he's really one of the you know probably top ten or fifteen players ever to play the game, and um, and Aaron everybody knows about the home runs, but what people don't think about is uh, just the all-around excellence of, uh, of this game. I mean, that guy could hit like nobody else, mm-hmm. like nobody ever has. Um, and so, you know, those are two pretty huge names. Um, but I also, I come away, I came away from this with an appreciation for, like, the, the quirks of the game. Like Don Mattingly, played for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. One season, hit six Grand Slams, never hit another Grand Slam before or after. <laughs> How does that even happen? You know, um, and uh, was it Fernando Tatis who had two Grand Slams in one inning? Yeah. Um, you know that that's that's astonishing. And so I wanted to get all that stuff in the book, and and so more than one player. Oh, although players, um, there are a lot of Negro League players that you don't hear about, and um, I mean everybody knows about Page and everybody knows about Robinson, but the more you read about these guys, um, the more you understand not just how great they were that the white guys who played against them knew that hmm. and, and the way they would talk about it you know um, you know the cool Papa Bell Josh Gibson and and, uh, and all these guys who haven't quite gotten the, the space in um, the American baseball fans consciousness that uh, um, 
that Page and Robinson have because those are the two that everybody immediately thinks of. You say Negro League players, everybody thinks of, of Jackie Robinson and Satchel Page because they're two that went on to play in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all these other guys and the stories and and the and the business stories, the way um, the way that the owners of the Negro League teams and the and the various Negro leagues. Um, built businesses in, in a way, in, in an extremely hostile environment and, and sort of made things happen and became uh, the, became uh, cultural centers for, uh, for populations of, uh, of, of African-Americans who had migrated up from the South. And there's, uh, those stories are really rich and it just, I think, barely begun to be mined, at least to my consciousness. I know August Wilson wrote Fences and some other plays that, that, uh, that have touched on that stuff, but there's, there's so much more and I would like to learn so much more about that. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing. Speaking of quirks, you reminded me of one, that I remember this past season, um, uh, as a, I'm a Toronto Blue Jays fan, so I saw a lot of Jose mm-hmm. Batista over the years, and it was only in 2018 where he hit his uh, first walk-off home run of his career. And it's just one okay. of those weird things where, like, he was a home run king for a long time, hit a lot yeah. of home runs, and yet it took till 2018 to finally get that, you know, that walk-off. It's one of those weird quirks too. Yeah, yeah, it is. You can just never tell. It's uh, um, yeah, you'd be surprised how many players played their whole career and never hit a grand slam. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, or uh, yeah, all di- all different kinds of things like that. And then once you start getting lost in those numbers, man, oh my god! <laughs> uh, uh, you do you look at retro sheet, and you can just never come out. As um, as someone who is a lifelong Tigers fan, was there a, a, a particular kind of Tigers moment that you didn't know that was really cool to discover while you were doing your research for the book? Oh boy. Um, I have been so. I steered my research away from the Tigers actually because I loved them so much. I was afraid of overbalancing the book toward the Tigers. Okay. And so most of the Tigers stuff that's in there, I didn't have to research. I mean, I checked back on like Hank Greenberg's numbers and, and Cobb and stuff like that. There's actually an error in the book related to the Tigers that I have no idea crept in there. It has to do with who they played in an early World Series game, and I know who they played in an early World Series game, and yet it's wrong in the book. Um, so I don't know how that happened. But um, the, uh, the, the, the Tigers moment to me is... Um, well, there. I mean, there are a few. There's, uh, you know, Kurt Gibson in Game Five of the '84 World Series is uh, is the one that um, that will always really stand out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's there's other stuff that even from the '84 World Series that I that I wanted to expand on a little more. Like, you know, Gibson's at the plate against Gossage, and Sparky Anderson is uh, is giving him a hard time from the dugout. You know, saying that uh, that Gossage is going to walk him, and Gossage isn't going to walk him, and Gibson stands in there, and because um, the backstory there is that uh, Kurt Gibson's first at bat in the major leagues was was against Goose Gossage, and Gossage struck him out on three pitches, <laughs> and so he comes up against him in the eighth inning of Game Five of the '84 World Series, and um, it was, everything on the line. I mean, the Tigers were already ahead, but it's a tight game, and uh, and Gibson cranks that shot into the upper deck and right. And I hit my I hit my head on the on the ceiling of my living room when that happened. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I could I could read about the 
you know the Tigers in any baseball history all day. But again, I wanted to uh, I wanted to balance everything out, so I spent a lot of time researching teams that I didn't know as well. Hmm. Which which team would you, besides the Tigers? Which one would you say? I guess that you didn't research as much, or like just because they're not as prominent. I mean, I guess. Blue Jays didn't really come up much in the book because they're not much of a presence, especially in most of the formative years of the game. Obviously, they didn't exist till '77. Yeah, I mean, and this was something I wrestled with because I because I actually liked the Blue Jays, even though they and the Tigers were. I mean, I remember the '87 playoff run, and uh, and mm-hmm. um, and I also remember camping with a girlfriend I was up in the Tobermory Peninsula, and um, and I put on the radio around the campfire, just and I was just dialing around looking for a ball game. And I found the Jays, and I listened to Dave Steve throw a no hitter. Oh wow! And um, <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think that was in 1990. Um, and that's still the only no hitter I have ever experienced, beginning to end live. Um, I've never seen one. I saw Verlander take one into the eighth inning one time, um, but uh, and Eric Ibar broke it up with a bunt. May he burn in hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but uh, but yeah, Steve's is the only one I ever. Uh, listened to all the way through. Interesting, um, but yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about the, or, you know, the the expos too. I mean, the poor expos, but uh, and I like Toronto, um, but it, there was, I had to follow the story in some ways, and once I'd set up a certain rhythm in the book, it kind of carried me away from certain things that I would have liked to talk about more. Mm-hmm. But I had set up certain things in the book that I had to pay off later. And those choices were tough. I mean, I would I would have loved to give every team more room, um, but like you know, like the Houston Colt Forty Fives and, uh, and all the all the various other teams like that. Absolutely. Um, but I only had 176 pages. Yeah, it's not a lot of real estate, uh, especially <laughs> when you're dealing with a game like baseball. And again, I'm I'm, I'm pr- impressed with how many characters you were able to you know wedge in there and be able to expand on and there's you know a bunch in there that i didn't know um so i I definitely enjoyed it from that perspective i mean and again the the history of the game and uh a lot of that you know the uh 19th century stuff is just fascinating because you know baseball was such a different game um before it became like a a business yeah those those early years there have been a couple of great books written about the one baseball in the garden of eden is a fascinating one it's written by the guy who i think is the official historian of the hall of fame um and if you're at all interested in that time period you should really check that out it's a great book um and i mean i ran across so many other great books i tried to put a reading list up on my website and uh and then every time i look at it i I feel bad about all the stuff that i haven't put in yet because so it's going to keep growing um (laughs) over time um and uh (coughs) yeah sorry um yeah there's uh so much, so much that could have gone in, but I hope I hope people who read the book, you know, don't come away thinking, "Geez, I wish you'd put in more about this." Um, <laughs> and uh, and the good choice was there because I, I think I packed a lot into those pages. I mean, it's not meant to be comprehensive. It's meant to give you, you know, these these are the these are the the big things and and some of the weird, fun little things, and you know, hopefully make people want to learn more about baseball and read other books. And you know, there's so much to enjoy and uh, so many nooks and crannies you can go into. Yeah, and there's always more, and um, and I and I hope even if I if I didn't run them all down, I, you know, maybe the book will point people to to some, you know, because if you read a book like this and you start get, to get interested, and then people will go find more weird stories about baseball on their own, and that would make me happy too. For sure, 
Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking your time today and for talking with us about, uh, about the comic book, comic book history of baseball, uh, as well as uh, Daredevil Noir, which for me was a, a, a big deal for me because, again, I was a big fan of that book when it first came out. I have the collected edition on my shelf, and I was recently talking about it, and then I d- didn't even realize that you also wrote this comic book history of baseball. So uh, it's two, <laughs> two amazing things I've really enjoyed. Well, thanks for having me. That's awesome to hear, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. All right.